Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, uh, the, the sermon text is verses 3 and 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Dears, you may be seated. We are in the third installment in our new series in 1 John. We've been going slowly through it, today covering only up through the fourth verse of chapter 1. But next Sunday, Lord willing, the 29th of the month, I intend to, by God's grace, preach verses 5 through 10, which are all holding very much together. And And so even now, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we do pray for Ken as he prepares, but we also pray for ourselves even here today as we desire to feast deeply of Jesus, the fellowship of the Spirit and the Father, the Son, and the Church. Grant us grace that we'll understand what fellowship is and that we'll enjoy it even more than we ever have before. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the New Testament word for fellowship is koinonia. I suspect many of you have seen that word and perhaps seen a a church named koinonia. It is a special word. It's used at least twice here in chapter 1 of 1 John. And it's a very key and important part of church life. But I dare say I think fellowship is largely misunderstood by Christians. It's not their fault. I think they haven't always been very well taught what the meaning of fellowship is, the purpose, the persons of fellowship. In fact, indeed, today, we're going, by God's grace, to grasp its meaning more clearly and to our great advantage. We should learn, even through this morning's sermon, just from two verses, the aforementioned source of fellowship, the persons of fellowship, and the purpose of fellowship as well. Even popular culture sometimes uses the word fellowship, and not inappropriately by any means all the time. For instance, in the very famous trilogy that came out some 20 years ago or so, the Fellowship of the Rings is a a nice way to consider fellowship, but Really, only in the Church of Jesus Christ is there true fellowship or real love or goodness or grace, as we all know. So all good things start in heaven, come down from the throne of Christ and Father and the Son into the Church, the body of Christ, and through its members affects the rest of the world. And even fellowship has that ring to it. Now, the divine pleasures of fellowship are so central to the Christian life that failure to experience fellowship is probably evidence that a person is still in their sins and not redeemed at all. So if that's true, and I believe it probably is in most cases, 
then this subject is very significant, and therefore we ought to make it our goal this Lord's Day, to be more wondrously joyful in total fellowship with God and his church. Today we're just looking at these two verses, 3 and 4 of chapter 1 of 1 John. If you're new here, you'd like to use the outline, you're free to do that. We provided you and we start here. The title of the sermon is The Church's Fellowship. First, the doctrine. The church's fellowship exists to fill us with joy. Did you know or realize that? Yes, fellowship's principal mean and mission is to make the true Christians of the faithful church happy. Let me say that again. Fellowship's main mission is to make the true Christians, uh, members of the faithful church of Jesus Christ, happy, joy-filled, and pleasure-bound. As a matter of fact, if you have any doubt about what I just said, all you have to do is peek at verse 4 of our lesson for today, which, of course, we hope to be studying. That verse not only explains why the Apostle John wrote the book of 1 John in the first place, it also tells us what true fellowship does for us. Here is that verse with my one-word amendment to it, and I'll explain that a little bit later. This is verse 4 of 1 John chapter 1. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete, unquote. What things? What things is John referring to? We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete, full, absolute in Jesus Christ. What things? Well, the things regarding koinonia, or fellowship between the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all the rest of the elect and redeemed, forgiven, blessed, still sinning, struggling, but real, Christian church member saints of the body of Christ. That's one of the main reasons you're here this morning. The Holy Spirit draws his people to faithful churches so that they can hear the good news of the gospel built up in their holy faith and the fellowship of the saints. The church's fellowship exists to fill us with joy. First, this delight comes through gospel preaching. Now, it's intriguing that there can be no actual authentic Christian fellowship without the church's Lord's Day or Sabbath Day preaching of the good news, the gospel of Jesus from faithful pulpits, even when the pastor messes up his pages and gets one point in front of the other one. The Holy Spirit's reasoning for this, that the preaching is absolutely essential as a means of grace, is not difficult for us to grasp or figure out, particularly from verse 3 of our, our lesson for today. Proclamation of the seen and heard one, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, brings us into the presence, the heart, the fellowship, and the family of the kingdom or church of God. Preaching does that. Preaching unites us around Jesus Christ and brings us into that glorious and wonderful koinonia that we're speaking of today. Now, this includes the three persons of the Holy Trinity, and it also includes all the regenerate sinner saints of the faithful church, be they in heaven where they're no longer sinning, 
or on earth where in the church militant, which we are today, we still struggle with sin. And, and of course, John's going to deal with that quite a bit at the end of chapter 1, telling us to confess our sins. In chapter 2, assuring us that we have a propitiation, atonement for sins, that God forgives his children their sins because the price has been paid. It's a beautiful thing. And where God is, joy is inevitable. God and joy go hand in hand. But there's, we live in a world where we could say there's no joy in Mudville, is there, down in the fallen earth today, where not just today, but in all the eras since the fall of Adam into sin, there's been death and hell and misery and strife and hate and angst and fighting and warring and troubles and trials and you name it, tribulations, the whole nine yards. But here's the thing. There can be no rectification of that problem without the church's faithful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why John has, has mentioned that several times, proclaiming, seeing, hearing, touching the person of the Lord Jesus. And that's one of the main reasons you are here right now. Now we go to the page I was on earlier. The, the church's fellowship exists to fill us with joy. This delight comes through gospel preaching, which unites us with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Please notice, dears, this union is that of us once fallen hopeless sinners with the three persons of the Godhead, the three persons that created the entire universe through the second person, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, Christ, the Son of God. We are having union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And anyone who's truly united to the divine trinity, the Holy Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, is also necessarily united to his church and all the members thereof, all the faithful members who are able to stay in a faithful church and hear the gospel and hear their sins reproved from Sunday to Sunday and yet are still able to keep coming back and receive the grace of God from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. You're in fellowship or harmony with all of them. Now, this is what fellowship or koinonia really is. It's this united relationship with the three persons of the Trinity and all the true saints of the church, whether they're already departed and gone to glory or the saints that you sit with next to you in the congregation, <clears throat> even today. In fact, John wrote this later in this very epistle at chapter 4, verse 7. And I quote him, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And I mentioned two weeks ago that the book of 1 John has 105 verses in it and 50 references to the word love or its cognates. That's a remarkable thing. This particular verse right here has four of them. So there's four of them right there in First John 4, 7. So the glorious divine flow goes like this. The loving heavenly trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, sends into his church men who are called by God to preach the gospel 
to his people, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, which leads to lovely fellowship among all the saints in the congregation, which then results in wonderful joy among all those who understand, who love God, and know who he is through Jesus Christ. For everybody else, it's kind of a mystery. They never do figure it out until the Holy Spirit does miraculous work, if he does that work in a person's life. So for the regenerate saints, they understand this, uh, grow in that understanding. It's not something you just necessarily fully get it all right away. But you come to understand that while you're hearing that gospel preach, that you're united with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and each other in this glorious bond of fellowship or koinonia. And all of this is because the God-man, Jesus Christ, has perfectly bridged the eternal gap between the holy God and us fallen, dead, lost, rebellious, hateful sinners. We can never earn our, uh, his favor. We can never do enough works. We can never do anything to please him. All of it's been done by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who's both God and man, represents us, represents God, atones for the sins of us human beings. So that when God forgives us our sins, he does it righteously because a human being has paid for those sins for us on the cross. It's a beautiful thing. Now we can understand a little bit better why joy then becomes so integral to this whole pattern of fellowship with the redeemed church and the gracious God. Because when people understand that their sins are forgiven and who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, then there's no, there's no way we can't not be filled with joy. Let's look at these two verses, 3 and 4, 1 John 1, and be amazed by the parties, P-A-R-T-I-E-S, of the church's fellowship. Now, I'm going to use the double entendre or dual meaning with regard to the word parties this morning. In one sense, I'm going to use the word parties to refer to particular individuals, three divine personages, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and human beings who are redeemed in Christ. And on the other hand, I'm going to use the word parties as a metaphor for jubilation or miraculous joy that's experienced by forgiven souls who are in harmony with the one who forgave them us our sins. So the word parties is is going to be used twice in the first sense in A and B, and once in the second sense in Roman number 2C. Let's now investigate the parties of the church's fellowship. First, Christ is manifested through his apostles, verse 3a. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The apostles were really a special class in the church. They don't exist anymore. They came about upon Jesus' calling of the twelve, and of course Judas was a traitor. Usually Paul is the one we think of as ultimately replacing Judas, the twelve apostles. They lived for a while in the first century, 
Almost all of them were martyred for their faith, which is a great testimony of the truthfulness of the Christian faith that you believe in, that they actually were willing to die for the truth. Would they have died if they didn't know that Jesus Christ was really risen from the dead? Would they have allowed themselves to be martyred? Probably not. Wouldn't make sense. One of those apostles or disciples was John, son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. His brother was James, and he was one of the three inner circle of Jesus, James, John, and Peter. And he'd lived to an old age. He probably lived a natural long life. And he may have written this book of First John late in his life. Maybe not. Maybe before 70 AD. We're not really sure. But at any rate, they were a special class. And their role was unique and absolutely essential and necessary because they left us the New Covenant, New Testament canon or books of the Bible. There are 27 of them, and we call them the New Testament. And First John, of course, is one of those books. But the apostles of Jesus, just like we in the church today, were never an end in themselves. They didn't exist just to like be a, a class of people with nothing else to do. Instead, their work, everything they did while they were exercising their apostolic ministry, i.e. planning churches, preaching the gospel, writing particular books of the New Testament, was designed to point all the saints in the church subsequently in history, including you and me here in 2022, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what the apostles were called to do. And that's why this half verse 3a reiterates what was written earlier in verses 1 and 2, namely, that the apostles saw and heard Jesus Christ, yes, say it again, and now they proclaim him or preach him. And there's remember that our Christian faith, as I told you earlier, is based on the credible testimony of these reliable historical eye and ear witnesses to Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And that is important. Our faith is based on our trust of them, our brothers in our same church, Peter, Paul, James, John, and the rest of them, who left us their credible testimony. And, you know, the apostles didn't want to be left out of the glory of the entire church's jubilant celebration of the Messiah, even as they understood that we wouldn't know about it except for their important ministrations to us through their eyewitnessing and their recording of the events that make up the historical and remarkable features of the gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection in particular. And that's why John wrote this, so that you too may have fellowship with us, at the end of verse 3a, that us would be a reference to the apostolic ministry per se. And if if there were other apostles alive when he wrote that, then he probably wrote it a little bit earlier than the 90s. But that's not a very important point. The very first link in this fellowship chain is Christ, the God-man. Don't forget that. Without Jesus, there's no life, there's no hope, there's no goodness, there's no salvation, there's no grace, there's no love, there's no mercy. There is no hope at all without Jesus Christ. He's the first link in the chain. 
And he is, quote, that which was seen and heard, unquote. So John is referencing the person of Jesus there again. So up to this point, the express participants so far are the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the apostles, the faithful ones, and the redeemed church of all the ages, but especially those who become conversant with this little letter of 1 John, which we're studying by God's grace these days. The parties of the church's fellowship, Christ is manifested through his apostles, and all the saints as we are connected to the Holy Trinity, verse 3b, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, theres uh, I always have to be careful to explain the word saints, especially if a lot of confusion. Saints are not people with a halo uh, squishing their head, okay? A, A saint is a faithful member of a true or faithful gospel-preaching church, whether that saint is in the womb, not even born yet, or just born and baptized, or a young person, a child, an adolescent, a teenager, an adult, an old person who is faithful in Christ. So a saint is a holy one. Holy because Jesus is holy, and not because they're not sinners. When we mention saints, some people might say, well, that can't apply to me. Well, guess what? It does apply to you if you're a faithful member of the church. Now, this doesn't apply to Lone Ranger Christians that think they don't need God or the church or too good for it or just too pompous or arrogant or something. None of this applies to them. Absolution doesn't apply to them. They might be in Christ, but they don't get that advantage. They can't have that assurance. But for the true saints, that is the case. And one of the reasons John writes this book is to assure the saints of that. Now, to go back to verse 3b, assuming the true church is joining with the apostles, John now introduces two of the three persons of the Holy Trinity into this gathering body of fellowship. And the two persons are the Father and the Son. Now, don't be confused, dear saints. Whenever we read of the Father and the Son, as we do here in verse 3b, And also, as we do numerous times in Paul's writings, other parts of the New Testament, we should never imagine that the Holy Spirit is somehow not included or excluded. As a matter of fact, we should assume the exact opposite. Now, part of the reason for that is, don't forget, that it is actually the Holy Spirit himself who is inspiring the apostolic writer In this case, the Apostle John. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring his writing, and he inspired all the words of all the Bible, Old Testament, and New. And usually, when the Father and the Son are exclusively alluded to, as here, the Spirit is drawing our attention to the covenant or family relationship within the membership of the Holy Trinity themselves. And this is true of the Father and the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. You might say that's hard to understand. It is hard to understand, but it's also true, and it is our confession. And it's been the confession of the faithful church ever since the earliest days. So there is this special relationship, familial if you will, between the Father and the Son. 
But the Holy Spirit, of course, is always included. Now, given that John wrote the words with us earlier in this verse 3, I think that his words, our fellowship, found now in verse 3b, actually applies not just to the apostles' fellowship with the Holy Trinity, but the apostles and the rest of the faithful churches, yours included, fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And remember, as I have told you in earlier sermons, that... All true Christian fellowship starts with love from the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And it comes through the apostles and finally embraces all the rest of the elect and redeemed sinner saints who make up the church in growing understanding and application and grasping of this great fellowship which you're enjoying if you're in Christ right now, whether you realize it or not. When John tells us that, quote, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, we know without doubt that there can be no higher realm or place than that. So he's saying our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. He's saying that the church is raised up as we are on the Lord's days, even as we are right now, spiritually speaking, into heaven, seated with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And next Sunday, as we take the Lord's Supper, that will be even more cogently understood by us. The parties of the church's fellowship, Christ is manifested through his apostles, all the saints, as we are connected to the Holy Trinity. And finally, the celebration of the entire ecclesia, which is a Greek word for church, around our pleasure-giving God, verse 4. So now we're changing the motif, of course. Let's read verse 4. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete, or our joy. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I did mention that I prefer, personally, I prefer your joy being complete. I think that kind of fits the apostolic context a little bit better. Back in those days in the ancient manuscripts, if you were a scribe sitting here transcribing the earlier manuscript from your brother sitting here, sister, whoever it was, you could easily miss a nuance in the Greek language and it could sound like what would come out your or our. And therefore, we have lots of ancient manuscripts. They're all very good and very reliable. Some of them say your, and some of them say our. Does it make any real difference? Not really. Do I prefer your? Yeah, I do. But not by a lot, and it's really not a critical matter, and it's really understandable how the manuscripts could have that issue. One of the remarkable features of verse 4 is that in it, John is telling us why he wrote this short epistle of 1 John. Now, later in the book, he's going to make other references like that, too. Like in chapter 2, verse 12, he's going to say, I'm writing to you. And then verse 13, I'm writing to you. He keeps saying that. So there are other sort of subordinate or nuanced reasons that John wrote the book of 1 John. But this is the first one he kind of comes out with. He's telling us why he wrote it. And isn't it great? He wrote it so that your joy would be complete. 
Yes, dears, the church is the only place of joy in the whole world. It's impossible to have joy outside of Jesus Christ. And you can't have Jesus without his church and his gospel, means of grace. So this is the place of joy. You know, it's also interesting, John was a great writer. You know, we think of John, I haven't said this, John was sort of the philosopher among the uh, apostles. Um, angelic, they would call him the angelic apostle because his language and his concepts are so lofty and glorious. As in uh, John the Gospel, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Logos, Jesus Christ. And he goes into that. Do you know in his Gospel, John also told us why he wrote that Gospel? Chapter 21, verse, or sorry, chapter 20, verse 31, we read these words. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the gospel. You know, if you've been around, you know that I'm one of those pastors that don't like lies and deception and religious tricks. I really like the truth. I like it to be out there. I like to be candid and honest. And I like the fact that John is too. He says, this is why, he doesn't say, well, I'm just trying to trick you into believing the gospel by recording a bunch of miracles. No, he says, I'm writing this book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. And by believing, you would have life in his name. Now, when you think of joy in the New Testament, what book do you usually think of? Philippians, right? Yeah. And rightly so. It's got an awful lot of joy in it, but even Philippians, as far as I know, wasn't expressly written for this purpose that First John is, to bring the church joy. And never lose sight, dears, in terms of joy, of the golden chain. Incarnation, the one who is seen and heard, touched, not a phantom, not a hologram, Not an illusion, a real human being, Jesus Christ incarnated, leads to proclamation, a faithful, clear gospel presentation, which brings forth fellowship among all those who hear it and results in unspeakable joy among those who have their sins forgiven in Jesus' blood. Let's do a little more application this morning and consider together why John's purpose in writing this letter was a noble one. We just saw that John wrote this little epistle so that, quote, our joy may be complete, to use the ESV, or you prefer your joy may be complete. And now we should ask the question, why is joy so eminently important to God, especially in relation to his beloved and redeemed church? Why is it so significant to God that you, the true saints, of his, the real Christians, should have joy and experience it. Why does God put such a high premium on your happiness? Why does he insist on making you happy, joyful, and content in Christ? Why is that so important? That's a good question. 
I think the answer is largely to be found in the fact that unless the true saints have the experience of supernatural joy at some level, we simply cannot and will not live the Christian life. That's what I think. I think that's why God puts such a high uh, emphasis on it. God created us human beings to be motivated by something worthy, beautiful, and wonderful. He didn't create us just to be robots or just respond to people in the world or to obey the world or what they tell us to do and, and pretend we're happy because we're doing our own thing. He actually created us to be motivated by real wonderful things. And all of those are found in Christ alone. We possess the full measure of resources of all of God's joy in him only. And therefore, with that thought in mind, let us contemplate together why John's purpose in writing this letter was a noble one. First, because redeemed churchmen have the warrant, W-A-R-R-A-N-T, to be supremely joyful. The warrant means the right or the authority or the okay or the blessing to be, to be supremely happy. No one else in the world has that right. Not any unregenerate sinner, not the most religious, non-Christ-loving sinner, not the most recalcitrant, hardened sinner. No unregenerate person has any right to be joyful. Uh, Satan has no right to be joyful. The fallen angels, which we call demons, have no right to be joyful. The unregenerate human beings have no right to be joyful either. And we didn't either when we were in our sins. We did not have any right to be joyful. And we weren't, of course. Even if we thought we were, we, <laughs> we were so deluded we didn't even realize how miserable we are. But we do have the right or the warrant to be joyful because every atoned for Christian sinner saint who's had their many sins all forgiven, if God gave us nothing else, that alone would be reason to be joyful for all eternity. We are overcome, though, the more we understand this. Lord's Day to Lord's Day, sermon to sermon. Sacrament to sacrament, fellowship to fellowship, we become more and more absorbed in this wonderful God of joy and pleasure. This grace-giving, joy-giving God. Our delight, dears, is not primarily that we don't have to face the fires of hell. You know, when I hear Christians talk that way, I think, eh, I'm not so sure. You know, when Christians talk as if the gospel is Jesus coming back again to save them from an evil world, they don't even know what the gospel is. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what happened 2,000 years ago at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to us today. Our sins are forgiven. Our delight is not primarily that we don't have to go to hell and face fire for eternity. That's actually not a good enough reason. The principal cause for our joy, according to the scripture and our maturing understanding by experience, is the presence, i.e. the fellowship of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
particularly via the Holy Spirit's residence within each individual heart and the collective church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. All as a result, all, get this now, this is important, all as a result of the reconciliation that we have received by God's grace through the blood atonement and glorious propitiation satisfaction of Jesus Christ for us who died in our place and applies his righteousness by imputation to our hearts legally so that we are declared not guilty, just, justified, cleansed, forgiven. That is why we're joyful. Our fellowship is all wrapped up in our justified standing with God through the merits, not of us, because we don't have any, but of Jesus alone. Someone might ask, well, how do I get that kind of a experience of exalted state of being, life, and joy? Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is the same answer John gave in his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. Through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why John's purpose in writing this letter was a noble one, because redeemed churchmen have the warrant to be supremely joyful, all through Christ who nestles us into the heart of the Trinity. The sort of the icing on the salvation cake, the Father not only accepts us perfectly, fully, and rightfully in Jesus Christ, which fact alone is enough to keep us joyful for a never-ending eternity, but the Father also loves us dearly, tenderly, kindly, perfectly, graciously, absolutely, in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, it is true that our Heavenly Father, whom we prayed to even in the Lord's Prayer this morning, our Heavenly Father loves us, his adopted children of this church, who love him just as much as he loves his own natural son, Christ alone, the eternally begotten Son of God. If these fabulous facts do not make us joyful, then I would pastorally proffer one of two explanations. So if we're sitting in the pews today and we're thinking, ah, eh, eh, eh. well, probably one of two things, although I don't want to say absolutely because I don't know. Human beings are very complex creatures of God. The most probable thing would be that that person is still in their sins. They're just still in darkness and death, hell and damnation. They just don't know. They're still in their sins. The other one could be that their understanding of faith and doctrine, theology, is so muddled, their comprehension of the gospel may be so unclear that they just don't yet understand it. But if that's the case, that can be rectified through a good, faithful church ministry where the gospel is clearly preached on the Sundays that God gives us. But for all of us who are in this congregation as members, let us be joyful in Christ through the employment of our God-given faith in our Lord Jesus and through our full fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the rest of the church. 
Beloved, the church is fellowship. Do you see now that it's not just doing... A, most people who think of fellowship is just like doing a lot of things, being really busy, just doing stuff. Stuff can be okay, okay? But that's not what fellowship is. Fellowship is the church gathered, hearing, living, and then from here proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's a grand and glorious thing. Let us be eternally thankful for the church's fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church's fellowship. So many things in religion, Lord, today are marketed to us and made complicated and difficult and nuanced, and yet it's really so simple. It all just revolves around Jesus, who's received through preaching and sacraments and prayer. We thank you that you have made it so wonderful. Thank you that you are honest with us, that you don't try to trick us and fool us and lie to us and tell us things that aren't true. We thank you that you are so completely honorable. Thank you that you've called this beautiful church into existence. May she always exist as a faithful congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.